one another. So let's go to the Lord in prayer, ask him as we, we dive into Luke chapter 9, that we would, um, we would have a great sense of, of uh, just all that the, the, the ministry of the word of God is to us. And I'm looking forward to uh, discovering together uh, the sufficiency of scripture in Jesus's pivotal time here in his ministry as he, he begins to transition uh, the ministry to the apostles and, and then ultimately to us. And so looking forward to us being in Luke 9 together this evening. Let's pray. Father, we are indeed so thankful for the abundant mercy and grace that you have given to us to worship together, the safety that we have to come together in the morning uh, to worship you because you desire and you deserve our ascribing worth to you. We confess this evening that there is absolutely nothing greater in all the world. There is nothing to be cherished more. There is nothing of more worth than you. And you're sending your Son, Jesus Christ, to be our Savior, to be our Lord. Indeed, when we did not deserve it, indeed, when we even rejected it, you sending the Spirit of God to convict us of sin and righteousness, we pray, Father, that you would continue to uh, use um, your Word in our lives and in our uh, families' lives, in the lives of Georgia Poe and in the life of uh, the Greens, Father, that you would, that you would uh, do an incredible work. And we pray that you would indeed help us today as we uh, continue to look for uh, ways in which we can grow and we can minister the gospel to others. Lord, we pray that you would help us in Luke chapter 9 now, that you would give us a, a sense of uh, the application of this text for us today. I pray that uh, the Spirit of God would continue to guide me, and not only in my study, but in my proclamation to be true, to bring out what is indeed in the text, not to say anything more, not to say anything less, and that the application uh, would be powerful because it's uh, your intended application for us. We pray that you would give us a sweet time now. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, take your Bibles and turn with me to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, Pastor Hobie uh, uh, continued the series up to Luke chapter 8 here. And now we really move into a transition of sorts in Luke chapter 9. And it's uh, perhaps a watershed moment, not perhaps the, 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 the greatest watershed moment, but it is a watershed moment nonetheless uh, in Jesus' ministry. In the previous chapter, we have seen an acceleration of the miracles performed by Jesus. He has power over the physical realm. Even the winds and the waves obey his voice. He has power over the demonic realm. And then we have in chapter 8, two miracles in one narrative the woman with the issue of blood and the resurrection of Jairus' uh, daughter. 
And this acceleration is demonstrated by the, the pace of the miracles that are presented and the power in which the miracles are demonstrated. It is also demonstrated by the reality that Jesus mentions, or Luke mentions three times in 20 verses in, John, in Luke chapter 9, that Jesus longs to go to Jerusalem. His ministry was in the Galilean region. That's his hometown region, the region of Nazareth. But in verse 51 of chapter 9, Jesus makes clear, or Luke makes clear, that when the days were approaching for his ascension, that's literally his taking up, and we understand the ascension of Jesus Christ after his uh, resurrection and death. After his ascension, uh, the days were approaching for his ascension that he was determined, verse 51 says, to go to Jerusalem. And why was he determined to go to Jerusalem? Well, we know that his ultimate mission, and the only mission, the mission that only he could accomplish was indeed it at Jerusalem on the cross. His plan to get to Jerusalem begins to emerge in chapter 5 where he meets some of his soon-to-be disciples as they were fishing. So we go all the way back to Luke chapter 5 to begin to see uh, the, the beginnings of the seabed of his plan to get to Jerusalem, to move from the Galilean region of his ministry to the Jerusalem region of his ministry. And he told Peter, Do not fear, in Luke 5, for now on you will be catching men. And when Peter and some of the other disciples that were with him uh, went to their boats and, and were brought to land. Uh, they left everything and what? And followed him. So the beginning of his, uh, his disciples and some of his apostles were in that group. And they trusted in Jesus and began to follow him. His plan continues to surface as we move into chapter 6 of Luke. After Jesus returns from a whole night of prayer, he comes to the crowd of his disciples and he selects 12, whom he also named, what? Apostles. And so in chapter 6, we move from them, from, from them being saved in chapter 5 and following him to now him naming 12 and calling them apostles. But there was still a large group, larger than the twelve, that were with Jesus in chapter 6, and, and would be with Jesus. But he begins to specifically call out twelve as apostles. And now we are in Luke chapter 9, and we see that Jesus' plan is nearly in full swing. And what was his plan? Look at verse 1. And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all the demons to heal diseases. See, Jesus' plan began with calling his disciples together. Together for the first time as the twelve apostles. And so he singles out twelve of his disciples, the apostles, and he calls them together. And here in Luke chapter 9, we see that he begins... A transition of ministry from Jesus to the twelve apostles. A transition. And at first thought, this ministry transition may seem to be of little consequence to us. Jesus knows the time of his ascension is approaching, and he's determined to go to Jerusalem, and, and he, 
he can't accomplish this ministry alone. And so it makes sense in our post uh, apostolic minds, really, to understand that Jesus wants to carry on his ministry through his apostles. But nonetheless, this is an incredible reality. Up until this point, only Jesus had been the one preaching. Only Jesus had been the one healing. And Jesus now sits down with the twelve, gathers them, them specifically, and begins to transition the ministry to them. And this ministry transition really informs us in several key characteristics tonight, just to be thinking about. How in the world do we view the scriptures? I think we're going to answer that question tonight, or, or the text is going to answer, what should we make of the scriptures? How, how important are the scriptures? And of course, as New Testament saints, we would, we would say, uh, the scriptures are remarkable. Just like Jesus handing over the ministry to the apostles was remarkable. And so the word of God is sufficient and remarkable. And how in the world should we view our ministry? That's perhaps another question. Our ministry in evangelism tonight. In light of this sufficiency of scripture, in light of the remarkable nature, the power of the gospel, evangelism. Have you ever had anyone dismiss you? Because why should I listen to you anyway? Are you better than me? Or why should I believe what you say anyway? That sounds good, but can you really live it yourself? But we have a powerful, authoritative word of God that, that our text here in Luke chapter 9 is really going to help us to bring that reality to the surface regardless of what kind of doubters and, and opinions come our way with the Word of God. And also how we view our ministry and discipleship. Some of us are in the process of trying to lead others, and, and we ask the question, how in the world can I lead others? I need to be led myself. But the very reality is that the Word of God is sufficient and the word of God commands us, and in its sufficient command, it gives us all that we need for life and for godliness and for leading others as we indeed follow others in this journey through life according to the word of God. And others are, are, are newer at this, and, and, and we're being asked to follow others that are in the Word of God, that are living according to the Word of God. And we may ask the question, why should I follow that person? Don't you know the blind spots that person has? That person is far from perfect. And so we can, like the apostles tonight, identify with the reality that we have been called to a ministry that utilizes far from perfect people. Needy people, fallen people, doubting people like Peter to accomplish the ministry of Jesus. And so let's read through Luke chapter 9, verses 1 through 11, and let's see what right do we have to be ministers of the gospel and let's see why in the world I should disciple someone. And why in the world I should be discipled myself as 
following an in-person perfect person or being an imperfect person. Why should I follow so-and-so? They don't have it all together. It's because Jesus and Jesus alone here hands his ministry over to the apostles and then consequently to us, and he gives power and authority. And we're going to see that line drawn throughout this text, I trust, as we read it together. Luke chapter 9, verse 1, as we've already read. And he called the twelve together and gave them the power and authority over all the demons and to heal diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to perform healing. So here is our first uh, parallel coupling. We see the first coupling of power and authority in verse 1, don't we? Together, he gave them power and authority. And then we move to verse 2, and not only did he call the 12, but then he sent, that's the, 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 the word that we get, the, the apostle uh, title from, apostolos, he sent the apostles out to proclaim, proclaim, coming from the reality, the power that we have sourced in God's word, and then the healing, proclaiming the kingdom of God and performing healing. There's the coupling, proclaiming and performing. The power, the source of the power is through proclaiming the word of God and the authority, the right to have that power, the authentication of that power shows up in the reality that we have the right as apostles here in the first century to heal. The right to heal demonstrates the right to proclaim. And isn't that true in Jesus' ministry? If we walk back through even what we've preached on and read in Luke, that he comes and he speaks and his words are authenticated. John, in his gospel, calls them the signs so that you would believe and belief you would have eternal life with the Son of God. And so there's power and authority, the coupling. And the coupling in verse 2 is there is proclamation of the kingdom, power. And there's performing of healings. That's the authority that backs up or authenticates that this is true power. So are we there? We have this coupling of power and authority throughout. And it's called proclaiming, performing miracles here in verse 2. In verse 3, And he said to them, Take nothing for your journey, neither a staff, nor a bag, nor bread, nor money. And do not even have two tunics apiece. Whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that city. And as for those who do not receive you, as for you, go out from that city, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. Departing, they began going throughout the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. There it is again. There's our coupling. Began preaching. There's the power of the apostles through the, through the transference of Jesus Christ. And healing. There's the authority that what they are saying is true. And what they are saying is from God himself, the incarnate Jesus, the Son. Verse 7, Now Herod the Tetrarch heard of all that was happening, and he was greatly perplexed, because it was said by some that John had risen from the dead. 
and by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen again. And Herod said, I myself had John beheaded, but who is this man about whom I hear such things? And he kept trying to see him. When the apostles returned, they gave an account to him of all, that's Jesus, of all that they had done. Taking with him, he uh, withdrew by himself to a city called Bethsaida. But the crowds were aware of this and followed him. Welcoming them, he began, and here's the coupling again, speaking to them about the kingdom of God. That's, that's in Luke, that's in the terms of the gospel, preaching, speaking the very words of hope, the very words that get you into the kingdom, the good news about the kingdom, and curing those who had need of healing. There's the authority. There's the right. There's the authentication that backs up that this is the true word of God. And so in Jesus' ministry transition, he gives us power and authority to minister for him. And we're going to look very quickly at the purpose of the ministry, the purity, and the place as it relates to the power and the authority that Jesus gives to his apostles, and therefore ultimately gives to us. And so let's look at the purpose of our power and authority. And you may be saying, well, Pastor Steve, you know, what kind of authority and power did Jesus give the apostles? Because what I'm reading here in Luke chapter 9 is not the same kind of power and authority that I seem to have and that our church seems to enjoy this ministry, are you sure this ministry transition is really something that can apply to us? And I'm going to argue that it is. And I'm going to argue that the power and the authority, in, in, while not in the same manner, is, is the same in its source and is the same in its consequence. And so that's, inter that's, that's critical for us to understand. We may not have the same manner of authority and demonstration of power, but we have the same source of it, Jesus Christ, and it certainly has the same consequence. And we'll discover that consequence as we go about. And so let's look at the definition of power here in this text. And so what kind of power is it? Luke gives us several textual hints to the power, and I've really already articulated those things. It was a proclaiming power in verse 2. And in verse 11, we see he was speaking to them about the kingdom of God. In verse 2, he was proclaiming the kingdom of God. It was the gospel power. That's literally the word in verse 6, preaching the gospel. And so the power is described and sourced as the word of God. And, and, and if there's nothing else that we can take away from this tonight, it's, it's the fact that the power of God is in the word of God. And Jesus, and Jesus himself, through the authority that he has, demonstrates that power is through the word of God. And so let's look at the the definition of authority, and we'll see how these two power and authority relate. So we've seen the definition of power. It's the word of God here in this text, this context. The, de the, the definition of authority. What kind of authority did the apostles have? Well, verse 1, they had authority over demons and to heal diseases. Well, we don't have quite that same authority today, certainly not in its manner. Look at verse 2. 
he, they had authority that, that performed healings. In verse 6, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. There's the authority again. Verse 11, speaking to them about the kingdom of God. That's the power. And here's the authority in curing those who had been who had need of healing. And so you may be asking, is there really a difference between power and authority? They seem to be really coupled together, as you've been uh, telling us. Doesn't healing the sick require power to do? Of course it requires power. But, but it's obviously, uh, while it's obviously uh, related, power and authority, it also uh, has a careful distinction here, as Luke describes it between power and authority. And that, that distinction is, is simply this. Power is the ability to do something, and it's sourced in the Word of God. And authority is the right to do something. And that also, true too, is sourced by here, Jesus' transition. For instance, up to this point, Luke has demonstrated that Jesus' words are powerful. If you go to Luke chapter 4, verse 35, we see Jesus... Uh, uh, healing the man with the unclean spirit. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, saying, there's the power in the word. Be quiet and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in the midst of the people, the demon came out of him without doing him any harm. And then we see Jesus in Luke chapter 5 heal the leopard while he was uh, in one of the cities, verse 12, chapter 5, Behold, there was a man covered with leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and implored him, saying, Lord, if you are willing to make me clean. This is beautiful. Jesus stretches out his hand, touched him, and said, I am willing. Even though Jesus was willing, he still spoke it. And what happens? Immediately, he was clean, and the leprosy left him. In Luke chapter 6, the man with the withered hand, Jesus says to him, Stretch out your hand. And what? It was restored. It was restored. In Luke chapter 7, we remember the healing of the centurion's servant and the raising of, wit of the widow's son. And then as Pastor Hobie uh, uh, skillfully preached to us, we have in Luke chapter 8 that Jesus calms the storm with his very word. The winds and the waves obey his voice. He heals a demon-possessed man. He heals a woman with the issue of blood. And he, rises, and he raises Jairus' daughter. All of these incredible things demonstrate Jesus' power because of his spoken words. And while we do not often equate power with words, the, gospel, the Gospels present Jesus' words as powerful. The, gospel, the Gospels present Jesus' words as, mere, as, 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 as essentially speaking into creation. It's, it's, it's recreating the hand. It's recreating the leg, leg. It's recreating the eyes of those who are blind. It's recreating uh, life from death. So, my friends, as powerful as the spoken word in creation is, Jesus demonstrates that he and he alone has that same power from death to life. And he makes a connection, or Luke does for us in chapter 5. In verse 20, we see that Jesus heals the paralytic. 
In Jesus' words, with the power to heal, he says this, pick up your bed and go home, remember? He says that to the paralytic. And what happens? The paralytic picks up his bed, which authenticates his power to, in verse 20, forgive sins. When he says, man, your sins are forgiven you. And so there is a distinct connection between healing and the ability for Jesus to forgive sins, as we've already seen. And so this distinction between power and authority is demonstrated by Jesus' words and is confirmed by the reality that Jesus recreates and that all the physical realm and that all the spiritual realm must listen to King Jesus. All the physical realm and all the spiritual realm are rightfully his. And so, my friends, we see that Jesus' very words contain power. Contain power. And Jesus has the absolute ability and, and, and the right to exercise that power by demonstrating healings. So how does this power and authority apply to us today? Jesus was transitioning his ministry. He's about... Uh, 18 months out of another 18 months, so about halfway through his ministry, his, his physical earthly ministry. And, and we come to uh, Jesus calling the 12 together. And he gives the apostles gifts like healings to authenticate that they were indeed from Jesus himself. And even Jesus' uh, even non-apostles, so if we were to flip over to chapter 10, we would see that there are 70 that are given uh, the ability and the gifts to heal. And they're to go out two by two, just like the apostles were here in Luke chapter 9. These were temporary gifts given, but these were gifts that were temporarily given to authenticate that Jesus and his words, and anyone that says his words, has the same power, the same ability that Jesus does over creation. And so here's the point. It is important to demonstrate by healing that the gospel is the power of God, and that, there is no, and, and that while there is no longer the gift of healing today, where does our, thought, our authentication come from? If, if we cannot walk around and, and demonstrate by the mere power of words, your hand is restored, your legs are, are strong enough, your eyes now can see where indeed is the power that we have. Where's the authentication? Where's the right? Well, the Apostle Paul kind of lands that plane for us so aptly in Romans chapter 1 when he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. To the Jew first, right? To everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. We have Jesus' words. That is his power. We have seen the result of his power. The power of God unto salvation. We have seen the gospel power. We have seen the miracle of the greatest kind. In fact, we were just reminded of a miracle the other day when Pastor had us send out a new birth announcement that Joe came 
know the, uh, the Savior. He was born again. My friends, if there is no other greater authentication than that, it is that Jesus is in the business of healing and saving and causing people to go from darkness to light, from death to life. That, my friends, is the healing of the greatest kind. And it is time to see with faith, not with eyes. Miracles abound. Do you believe that God's word has the power to transform lives? <laughs> that there is no greater power than the word of God. We have no greater help or hope. There's no amount of entertainment. There's nothing that we can add to this message. But it is the gospel and the gospel alone that is powerful and sufficient. So continue to learn, to live, and to share the gospel with others. And remain faithful to God's word. And you, my friend, will see souls saved. You will see the authentication of the very power of God. So remain faithful. Remain faithful in the content of your proclamation to the unsaved. And when someone scratches their head and says, Why in the world should I listen to you anyway? Don't you have your own problems? My friend, you have the very power of God. You have the very power of God in the gospel. And when someone asks you, well, why should I follow you in disciple making? Why should, I, why should I look at your life? Look at how many blind spots you have. You don't have it all together anyway, my friends. If you're living you're the best that you can according to the gospel of Jesus Christ, daily soaking in his word and trying to live for him, you have the power of God. And you have the power to lead others in this journey called the Christian life. And so we see the purpose of Jesus giving power and authority to his apostles for them to carry on their message, his message. And Jesus gives his apostles power and authority to authenticate that message. But there's another aspect that Jesus is concerned about. It's not just, it's just not the power of the gospel. Though that is enough, it is also the purity of it and the purity of their motives. And we see that here in verse 3. And he said to them, Take nothing for your journey, neither staff nor bag nor bread nor money, and do not even have two tunics apiece. Don't even take two coats with you. What in the world is Jesus talking about? He prohibits taking a staff, a bag, bread, and money. That's really... Uh, not the best way to travel, is it? And there's other gospel accounts that vary this list slightly. For instance, Matthew says, don't take sandals. And Mark says, uh, not, to take, uh, not to carry sandals with you, but to wear them. And Luke doesn't even mention sandals. And so what are we to make of this? Is this some sort of addition? Is this really important? And given the length of their journey and for the custom at this time, it would be very odd for them not to wear sandals at all. And so from a negative viewpoint, Matthew says, don't take extra sandals with you. From a positive viewpoint, Mark says, wear the sandals that you have, but you don't need to carry any. And Luke doesn't even address it. And so what's the point of not taking any sandals with you? Don't take a staff, don't take a bag, don't take bread, and, and, and these lists might not line up perfectly. Well, the point is this. It's simple. Travel. 
lightly. Travel lightly. Before you had kids, you knew that you could travel lightly. If you're traveling by yourself, it's a lot easier to get on the plane with the carry-on. But when, once you have kids, then you have diaper bags, and you have car seats, and you have uh, uh, strollers. And I'm so thankful that most of those things you don't have to pay for when you go into a plane. But my goodness, you have to pay someone to help you carry it with you. It's impossible to do. Jesus says, don't take any of it, but travel lightly. They were itinerant preachers traveling everywhere. One man put it this way. He said, they did as he commanded and set off theological and spiritual blitzkriegs. Remember that from your German history from World War II? Preach the gospel and heal everywhere. They had no time to rest, no time to be weighed down. They should go and they should go in haste. The pace of their ministry didn't allow them to be weighed down. Remember, Jesus uh, said that he was feeling a drawing to go from the Galilean region all the way to Jerusalem and that he wanted to see some things accomplished here in this region. And so he takes the 12. In the next chapter, he takes 70 disciples and he gives them similar instructions and pairs them out two by two and says, go and preach. And so there's an apparent haste uh, or at least urgency, I should say, involved in, in this mission and in this transition. So it's apparent that the reception of their ministry was also in view. Just as their power and authority had to be authenticated by their message, so the reception by those who received the message was also uh, a powerful testimony to the gospel. Look at verse 4. For whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that city. And, and by the way, they go into the, to a house and they stay there and they have to stay there for their lodging, for their food. Remember, they don't have any money. They're pretty much helpless. But people in these households receive the gospel, receive them, and like anybody who receives the gospel wants to, wants to uh, 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 reciprocate and be thankful and take care of uh, fellow believers needs and so the reception of the message by those who received the message is powerful is powerful and so their journey is distinct it's distinct it's powerful travel light but it's distinct in its purity the fact that they were to stay in one house demonstrates the reception of the messenger as we already noted Remember, the apostles brought nothing. So they were distinct from the common practice of the day, which was for traveling itinerant philosophers to go around from home to home, not unlike a traveling doors salesman, and, and to move from house to house and essentially peddle their philosophy. And most of these philosophical beggars, if you will, were only interested in one thing, survival. They didn't really care about their message, and they didn't really care about the person that they were telling their message to. They cared about getting a free meal, free lodging, and whatever else they could get, some money in the purse. In fact, some commentators see in verse 3, take nothing, including a bag, this bag as the philosophical purse, if you will, of the time which was a common practice for philosophers to, to carry around a, a purse for people to put money in. Uh, 
I'm not comparing them to the Salvation Army, but, but it's, 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 it, this purse is akin to the, is, is akin to the drum that you would, you would put money into, uh, the red drum that you'd put money into uh, during Christmas time. That's how well known this purse was at the time. Everybody that sees a Salvation Army stand and hears the bell and sees the red drum, they know that that's what it's for. And so likewise here, this purse had a very specific uh, connotation in the culture. And so uh, they were to be distinct from that. Look at verse 4. Whatever house you enter, stay there. Don't go around from house to house in that city. Stay there until your journey, until your, your discipleship, your evangelism is done, and then move to the next city. They were to be distinct Jesus says it bluntly in, in chapter 10 in verse 3. He says, go, and he's t- telling this to the 70 disciples after the apostles here. He says, go, behold, I send you out as lambs into the midst of wolves. There were all kinds of wolf-like philosophers peddling their wares, trying to make a dirty living. And Jesus says, don't be like them, don't even look like them, don't smell like them, don't act like them. Be distinct. You have the power and the authority from the Son of Man himself. And so it's an incredible thing that the purity of the gospel is to be upheld because it has power and authority like none other. And so they were to be distinct You know, the early church, by way of illustration, had this same issue. They were peddlers of philosophy, and they were uh, trying to tell people that they needed to be circumcised, called Judaizers, to be saved. That, That you had to be a Christian, but you also had to follow the law. And then there were Gnostics who, among other things, attacked the very, very deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's an early Christian document called the Didache, which is dated from the late first century into the second century and is really the second generation Christian document of the time. And the Didache demonstrates the problem that was rampant in the early church by people peddling their philosophical wares and not the true gospel. People preying on believers for their hospitality. It says... But if he, that's the itinerant, teaches so as to increase righteousness in the knowledge of the Lord, receive receive him as the Lord. But if he shall not remain except one day, uh, excuse me, but he shall not remain except one day. So he has to stay just one day. But if there be a need, so here's an exception, also the next. But if he remain three days, he is a false prophet. So you had three days, and then that was it. You were a false prophet. But if he wills to abide with you, so here's another exception, being an artisan, let him work and eat. And then they cite 2 Thessalonians Thessalonians chapter 3. And so the point of the Didache here is saying, listen, there are people traveling around trying to take advantage of Christian hospitality. And Christian itinerant gospel preachers ought not do that. In fact, they should be so above reproach, so above board, that they only stay a day. And maybe if there's a need, maybe that need is with you. 
if they only stay two days. And if they desire to stay three days, then they're not going to mooch off of you. They're not going to take advantage of your hospitality. They're going to actually say no thank you when it's offered, and they're going to start doing things, working with their hands, being artisans, whatever it is, so that they can eat themselves. So there's a need for a distinction between the wolves traveling around and the true power and authority. When you have the true power and authority of the gospel, you don't need to travel around peddling your wares. And that's the point. Travel light. The journey was to continue. Look at verse 5. It was to continue. And as for those who do not receive you, as you go out from the city, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. The very nature of the journey meant that people would reject Jesus. That's not a surprise. We see that time and time again up until this point as Jesus, the Son of God, does ministry himself. And Jesus' point is that you're going to have rejection as well. But don't let that rejection stop you. In fact, continue on. Continue on. Don't be surprised by that rejection. Continue on. Don't be dismayed by that rejection. Shake off, he says, the dust off your feet. And that was a Jewish custom, saying, you know what? It's all done. There's nothing more we can do. We have done all that we can do, and we depart, and not even the dust from this place is with us. And so for an itinerant preacher, that was certainly... uh, Uh, applicable. We aren't itinerant preachers, so there are very few times that we probably say, that's enough, we'll shake off the dust of our feet and never have anything to do with them. That's not how love works. So what's our point? What's our application? What sets a messenger of Jesus apart from any other messenger is that at the end of the day, there is absolutely nothing else we can do. There is no greater burden that we have. There is nothing more important to say, more powerful to preach, than the gospel and the gospel alone. And that's the point. There is nothing else you can do. If you have to shake off the dust from your feet, you shake off the dust from your feet, but don't change the message. Don't add to the message. Don't subtract from the message. The powerful message is the gospel and is authenticated through Jesus and his ability to save men from their sins. So we don't change the message or manipulate the message so that it is easier for the, message, for the, for the audience to hear. It's an honest message that can't be changed. And so, my friends, we're to travel light, we're to stay in one spot, and we're to continue. And so, what's the point? What's the application? Well, the ministry, the power of the ministry, always comes down, my friends, as we see here, patterned for us in the sufficiency of the Scripture. Do you really believe that God's word is able to take doubters and dissenters and to transform them, people who have their heels dug in, to submit and bow their knee to the Lord Jesus Christ and see new life through God working in them?
Do you believe that it is critical for someone to come alongside you and to minister the Word of God and to pattern the Word of God in discipleship into your life? And do you believe that it is critical for you to actually take the Word of God and to proclaim the Word of God through your words and through your ways in a one-to-one relationship or couple-to-couple relationship, discipling and leading people onto life according to the Word of God. That's the point here tonight. That the Word of God is above all and only sufficient for everything, as Peter says, to life and godliness. In verse uh, 44 of, uh, and 42, excuse me, of, of Luke chapter 4, if we've learned anything from Jesus' ministry, we learn that people are all too eager to follow him. He amasses great crowds at times, and he tries to lose them at times. And this is the point. The point isn't how big of a following do you have. The point is, isn't how well are you received. In chapter 4, verse 42, it says, When day came, Jesus left and went to a secluded place, and the crowds were searching for him. And they came, they found him, and they tried to keep him from going away. But he said to them, I must preach the kingdom of God. There's no other task for us to do, my friends, than to preach God's word. He says, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also, for I was sent for this purpose. So he kept preaching in the synagogues of Judea. My friends, don't lose sight that we were sent with the same purpose. And we have the same powerful and authentic, authoritative word of God. So when Jesus begins the transition of his ministry to the apostles, he reminds them of the purpose of his ministry, transformation. He reminds them of the purity of his ministry, to have distinct motives and to not add to the gospel. And finally, we see in his ministry transition, that there is a place for his gospel ministry. There is a place for his gospel ministry. And that is first geographic. We, are, we remember I told you that this was during his Galilean ministry. And there's little detail on exactly where the, the apostles went uh, in, their, in their ministry here as Jesus sends them. But there's, there's no reason to think that they left that region and, and how far into the region, who knows. But this is what we do know. That there were no exceptions, exemptions to where they were to go. Verse 5, Jesus says, Go out from that city and go to the next. Shake off the dust from your feet and go to the next city. He uses the word uh, uh, polis, all right? Like Minneapolis, Bigger cities, Indianapolis, bigger cities. And in verse 6, we see Luke uses the word, departing, they began going out, verse 6, throughout the villages, smaller, less populated communities. In verse 6, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. There was no exception to where they should go. And we see that this uh, translates into all social spheres, all classes of citizens hearing about the mission of Jesus Christ. And so we see that it goes to position, not just geographic location, but, but to all positions. 
we see in verse 7, now Herod the Tetrarch heard. Herod heard, and he heard three popular opinions of who Jesus was. He heard that maybe Jesus was John the Baptist, raised from the dead. And Herod says, but, uh, uh, but verse 9, I myself had John beheaded. So there's another opinion in verse 7. It could be, excuse me, it's in verse 8. It could be that it's, it's Elijah. Some say that, it is, that Jesus is Elijah and that he had appeared. And that was, that was a common opinion. And then others say it could be one of the prophets of old, like Moses. And so whatever was happening, enough buzz was happening that Herod heard about Jesus so much so that in verse 10, uh, excuse me, in verse 9, Herod kept trying to see him, Luke says. He kept trying to see him. And so the apostles were so effective, so uh, uh, ubiquitous in their ministry, that from the smallest villages to the biggest cities in the Galilean region, people heard about Christ and they reacted. Some pleasant, some unfavorable, and they shook off the dust from their feet and they moved on. So much so that, like Jesus in the past, crowds began to form in verse 11. The effectiveness of the apostles was reinforced by these crowds. And crowds, uh, 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 essentially, while, while it was nothing new to Jesus' ministry, it certainly does give some semblance that, that this ministry transition was, was effective. That Jesus was able to, through his powerful word and through his ability to give healings to, to the apostles, the gift of healings to the apostles, authenticated. People responded, at least, and saw, my goodness, these are from Jesus, and look at what they can do. And so they amassed a gathering. They amassed a gathering. So let me just ask you tonight, in closing. There is no class of people, whether a commoner, a peasant, or the most powerful. There is no group of people, whether blue or red. There, there is no place that is off limits to the powerful gospel message. My friends, what are you doing with the gospel? With the gospel. And, and let, me, let me quite frankly uh, change the application just slightly. As we see that that there is no greater authority. Even Herod himself is hearing about the power of the gospel. And we read later on that Herod will have to do something, that Herod is going to long to see Jesus dead. But Herod himself must do something with the gospel. There is no authority or power outside or above, I should say, the gospel. And so let me ask you tonight, what or who is your primary authority? Who is your first authority? Who are you rendering unto? 
Who are you giving your offerings unto? Where is your time spent? Where do you pay your allegiance in your listening, in your reading, in your speaking? You see, our allegiance is to Christ, not to Caesar, as our first authority. And the apostles here demonstrate that reality. The apostles will walk into that reality. And, and, though, and, and though Herod himself seeks to say, who is this Jesus? And ultimately to say, this Jesus must die. My friends, let me ask you a question tonight. Who is your first authority? Who is or where is your offering going? Your time being spent? You know, this pandemic is really demonstrating that reality, isn't it? It's really demonstrating whether or not we believe that the power and the authority of Jesus Christ is the ultimate authority in our life and what it says go and must go. It is demonstrating uh, where we put our hope and our help and if fears come out, how we deal with them according to the word of God. Jesus' ministry transition or the beginning of his ministry transition to these apostles applies to us today. We don't walk around healing people from their diseases, but we walk around with the same right and the same authority to proclaim the gospel of Christ, which is the power to save people from their sins. Jesus' ministry, his transition of ministry to his apostles, demonstrates the purpose, the purity, and the places in which we are to take the power and authority. You know, a well-known author... G.K. Chesterton says this as he was sitting down at a restaurant. If a, rhinoceros, if a rhinoceros was to enter this restaurant now, there's no denying he would have great power here. But I would be the first, he says, to rise and assure him that he had no authority whatsoever. If you've been to the zoo, you understand that a rhino has an incredible sense of power. That horn alone in the front is enough to be rather intimidating. And I did some research. A white rhino is around two and a half tons when it's a full adult. That is like, if you're familiar with MASH and, and the MASH Jeep, the military Jeep, that is essentially the equivalent to 10 military Jeeps compacted into one rhino running right at you. That is pretty powerful. That is one big rhino. And no one questions that rhino's authority in the zoo. It's supposed to be there, and it is powerful. But that rhino has absolutely no authority in the restaurant. It is powerful, but it has absolutely no authority. And you get one tranquilizer into that rhino, and the rhino's power is done and he is removed from that restaurant. It's a silly quote, but it is a, it is a powerful quote because you and I are walking around with incredible power, much more power than a white rhino. And my friends, while it may not feel like it at times, we are walking around with more power than the rhino and all the authority to be there. 
That is the significance of Jesus' ministry transition. It is now our mission, handed down from the apostles to us through the word of God. May God give us the faithfulness and purpose and purity and in every place to see the power and the authority of the gospel take root, take hold into the lives of those whom we proclaim it. Let's pray. Father, tonight I pray that you would help us quite simply to walk around understanding that we have incredible power, the power of the word of God. And we have a credible authority, all the authority in the world to be here because it's authority transferred from the apostles now to us. And while we may not be able to heal and we may not be able to, to, to raise people from the dead, my, uh, uh, my father, you have given us the authority and the right to proclaim the gospel. And you demonstrate that authority as we see new birth after new birth after new birth take hold. And as we see the word of God washing over us, preparing us, sanctifying us to be the person that you've called us to be and as a group of people to be the church that you've called us to be, uh, to be uh, white and washed and ready for the Lord Jesus Christ. We're thankful. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.